0: Attention is returning to conditions in the DeKalb County Jail in Atlanta, Georgia, after 23 people attending a music festival connected to the Stop Cop City movement were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. Most of these defendants are now held at the DeKalb County Jail, where nurses are withholding medication and guards are maintaining cold temperatures. They're also ignoring clogged toilets and denying consistent access to adequate food. Local advocates report that conditions at DeKalb County Jail have long been an issue. A 2019 social media scandal drew attention to a long-term problem of toxic mold on food and in living areas. And multiple federal and state lawsuits are ongoing to address long-standing dietary and medical neglect. On March 15th, prisoners in Ohio State Penitentiary launched a protest against repression. They assert that guards have begun forcing them to stand in the shower for hours at a time as punishment for speaking out against conditions. They're demanding an end to this practice, as well as improved food portions and the reinstatement of arts and craft classes. Their outside supporters request that people call in to support these demands. The number is 330 743 0700 extension 2600 or to ask for the warden's office. This week, we begin sharing a panel hosted by Haymarket Books on the abolitionist struggle to stop Cop City. In this section, we hear from Kwame Olafemi of Community Movement Builders, and Sarah Haley, a leading historian of black feminism in the South. Olafemi powerfully situates in the Cop City proposal in Atlanta's recent history. He juxtaposes popular demands for a Rayshard Brooks Peace Center, named for a 2020 victim of police murder, with the government's preference for Cop City, an urban warfare training center. The city of Atlanta actively sabotaged the modest Peace Center plans while pushing through the expensive Cop City proposal, despite overwhelming opposition. Haley goes deeper in time to put Cop City in the context of long cycles of anti-Black violence, plantation-based prisons, and alleged carceral reforms. Here's Kwame Olafemi.
1: Oh, cool. peace, everybody. Um, really grateful to be on this, uh, share the space with everybody, and uh, be on this video call and webinar with all of you, um, Cop City. As many of you know, has been a campaign that's been ongoing ever since the ordinance was first announced um, in April of 2021. Um, so, for folks who don't know what Cop City is, um, what we organizers call Cop City, um, the police call the uh, a police training facility, right, or police training academy. Essentially, why we call it Cop City is that what the proposition is is to construct literally a mock city of Atlanta um, where the police will be able to train and specifically by their own words, they will be doing things such as bomb testings, they'll be practicing high speed car chases, they'll be practicing, um, you know, there'll be fire ranges, there'll be tear gas detonations. Um, there's going to be a helicopter, pad, a Black Hawk helicopter pad, or they're going to be practicing deployments, right? All of these different types of tactics that we don't see um, in just to, you know, you don't see, you don't use those tactics to keep people safe. You do use those tactics when uh, preparing for war, right? And so what we call Cop City is we call it, a, a, you know, a urban warfare training facility, because based off of what they're doing, that's what it seems like they're going to be training for. Um, and I wanted to, and part of why we we call it that, right, is being able to trace the timing in which they um, announced this and also the, the specific context into what was going on in Atlanta during that time and the months, you know, right, right before, right? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of that, about what's going on with that. So first off, um, I think it's extremely important to understand that you know, this is the announcement was in April of 2021. And that was right after the uprisings of 2020, right? All across the country, even the, the world, even folks were protesting the police murders of, you know, some of the uh, the biggest names that were out there, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor here in Atlanta, it was Rayshard Brooks, right? Rayshard Brooks was murdered by the Atlanta Police Department um, in the People's Town neighborhood, which is on the south side of Atlanta, um, when he was murdered, the following day uh, he was murdered at a Wendy's, um, at a Wendy's drive thru essentially. And um, when the day afterwards, that Wendy's, there was protest, and the Wendy's was burnt down. Now, in that space, after that took place, um, Rayshard Brooks' family, right, his sister um people that he knew his wife um they got together and they were and and you know his sister was basically said that you know out of all of this pain that's happened in this place we want to be able to build something that's going to be that's going to bring peace to our community right people's town is uh, you know my organization community movement builders we organize um in uh, pittsburgh neighborhood which is right next to uh people's town which is uh you know where i live it was literally uh I, I could walk to that wendy's where where rayshard brooks was murdered and that entire area southeast and southwest atlanta is um you know poor working class black communities right um heavy police ov- overly policed um you know not a lot of uh resources available And oh. what uh, what lady a um rayshard brooks sister was uh trying to do was build uh rayshard brooks peace center take the wendy's property that where Ray uh, rayshard brooks was murdered and turn it into a center where folks can have resources, where folks can be able to really just take a break from the everyday struggles of living in the community and be able to have, um, you know, we were going to be developing uh, food uh, networks, mutual aid networks out of that program, my organization, Community Movement Builders. There was also going to be, you know, job training facilities, right? Places for us to learn, to do Know Your Rights trainings. And at that location, we actually already started doing that, right? So uh, in the... It was a memorial site for Rayshard Brooks, but then also uh, it was a liberated space where folks, you know, where his where Rayshard Brooks family and his friends came, made sure that, you know, black folks could come in there and make sure people were safe. houseless folks uh, could come there. Tents were set up. Even a bathroom was built so that people could use the bathroom out there. Um, there was, um, you know, food, barbecues on every single day. People could. Eat, people could uh, rest, all those different types of things, and then there was these ongoing trainings, vigils, and other aspects to be able to build out with this kind of peace space, right? I'm giving you all this context to be able to see, to again, to give you the narrative about where, how Cop City was built out of it. Now, this started to get a lot of publicity, right? You know, there was a lot of people that were coming in. It was becoming a, a real mark in the city. I was when I when I would come out there, there would be people that would come from out of town, right? From like Memphis, from Tennessee, from all these other states to come by and see what was being built and what was being done in this location. Um, Out of that, um, I remember the specific day, uh, the then city council representative, Joy Shepard came, uh, she was district District 12, city council representative came, saw the space. um, And within a week, um, was already trying to sabotage what was built. When I say that, um, I'm speaking specifically during that time, this was all outdoors while the family was having negotiations with the Wendy's Corporation to purchase the land at market value. They had already had the money to be able to purchase the land um, to be built to build the Sharp Brooks Peace Center. Within a week of Joyce Shepard coming in, she had intervened within those uh, with those negotiations, sent an email to Wendy's Corporation to say, this is not in the interest of the community. The community does not want this Rayshard Brooks uh, Peace Center to be built here. And under my authority as a city council D- district 12 representative, I don't think this should take place. After she sent that email, all negotiations stopped, right? Organizing that took place afterwards, um, was, you know, we, we knocked on every single door in the people's town and P- in Pittsburgh neighborhood. Um, and we, you know, got petition signatures. We, um, had conversations with folks unilaterally, not a single person said that they did not want the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center in their, uh, in, in, in their community. Right. Because why would you not want that? Something that has, that's bringing resources into the community. Now, this is all, again, in the same backdrop, right? This is all the organizing and whatnot that's been going on um, on the ground in Atlanta after H.R. Brooks had been murdered. Um, also, this was around in the context of, the, of a defund, heavy defund the police uh, movement here in Atlanta as well, right? And so what I'm talking about specifically, there was organizations that had been organizing for a long time, new organizations and or coalitions that had been developed. Um, one in particular, a program was called defund APD refund communities dark. And that one in particular had, uh, been doing a lot of grassroots organizing to push this narrative of defunding the police specifically recognizing that the Atlanta police budget had increased steadily over the past, um, you know, five years. And then, um, within that, the new budget that was proposed to be, um, I think it was, uh, uh, I think it was $30 million more that was going to be given to the police in that upcoming budget. The campaign was to take those dollars that are being allocated to the police and putting them into resources into the community. Because of all this organizing and attention that has been going on to city council, because of all the, you know, uh, pressure that community folks have been putting on to city council to be able to defund the Atlanta Police Department, to refund communities, to be able to allocate resources differently and having strategic plans to do so, It was only because of that and the constant attendance of meetings and talking to council members that organizers were able to even find out that this ordinance of Cop City was even being brought to the table. Right. It was a very intentional process of bringing this within the shade of darkness, trying to pass it really quickly without a lot of public input or public even knowing that was taking place. And because there were organizers that were so diligently listening to what was going on, they were able to uncover and release it to the public. Now, ironically, the exact same city council person, Joy Shepard, who uh, shut down the negotiations for the Rashad Brooks Peace Center, is the same city council person, District Twelve, who um, brought the ordinance to the um, you know to the to the city council to be voted on, right? By city council, not by the community. Important. <laughs> um, and so. I say all that to say the city, it shows a pattern of the city w- being willing to put dollars into the pockets of the police and out of the community, right? Not being willing to invest or even allow resources to be coming into the community with, but at the same time building, um, you know, destroying forest and also building, uh, investing money into building resources for the Atlanta police department. And so that's just a little bit of background about the context of like how, um, you know, what was going on during that time period when the Atlanta police foundation and the city council of Atlanta first brought up cop city and how we're, you know, the very beginning early stages about how we got to this stage. The other thing I'll just say really quickly is like during that time period, when the ordinance was first announced April, 2021, that was, you know, there was overwhelming opposition to the building of Cop City, right? I think that it's important to note, you know, I personally don't think that there's any wrong type of protest, but the way that the, uh, you know, propaganda machine of Atlanta, including the mayor, has been trying to demonize, you know, the quote-unquote wrong ways of protesting, the direct action, the treasives, all those different types of things, it's extremely important to recognize that ever since the ordinance was first announced in April 2021, you know, organizers and organizations have been resisting it in all the quote unquote proper channels, right? As soon as it was announced, we had canvassing teams that were going out into our neighborhoods and knocking on doors, letting people know this was happening, getting petition signatures against it, doing calling campaigns to be able to you know, have residents call in to let the city council know that this is not in favor, that they're not in favor of this. It was so much opposition that was built when it was first announced that the city council had to delay their vote, Um, come up with a whole new propaganda-like video to talk about, you know, how this is going to be, this is the, you know, this police facility is going to be used to be able to train police officers to be able to interact with communities better, all this different type of stuff. Um... Um, utilizing, you know, Martin Luther King's name to say this is what his dream was, was to build this type of police center, um, calling it Michelle Obama Park, all these different types of propaganda tools, um, you know, that, that the that the uh, Atlanta Police Foundation and the City Council used to be able to push back against the narrative that, you know, the organizers were exposing about Cop City. Even to the point where, where public comment... Um, there was 17 hours of public comment when they finally offered public comment because they were trying to pass this without any kind of input from the public. But when they were pushed to actually have public comment, there were 17 hours of public comment, and 70% of the people that called in were against Cop City. So mass opposition to the project from the beginning. And of the 30% of people who uh, were in supportive, we had folks that were tallying this. Um, There was a large percentage of them that were actually police officers that were calling in. And reading literally from a script that had been disseminated amongst against around police to be able to um, you know say that this to, to be able to offer their support and the other bulk of the people that were in support of it were from the majority white city of Buckhead, or not city but the majority white um, neighborhood of Buckhead that's in Atlanta. So all of that context I think is extremely important to see w- for, like how it originated. And how, where we're getting to now, because it was very clearly built out of the need for the police, feeling that they were unprepared for when they kill us in the streets to, um, see, to see like, oh, we need to be able to have a better way to be able to crowd control uh, when we continue to kill people, <laughs> black folks in the, in the streets in the future. We were unprepared for these protests and now we have to uh, reconfigure and see how we can make this do better um, from there and in the future.
0: Next, we have Sarah Haley from Columbia University, speaking on carceral histories of the South and of Cop City's origins.
2: I will just kind of touch on a few strands of the history that I think are relevant for Cop City. One is obviously the history of the carceral state in Georgia and the South. The lands that the 85 acres that uh, Cop City is slated to be built on are, are of course, indigenous lands that were throughout, you know, Georgia's history used for the um, purpose of carceral economic extraction in the prison system, forced labor of predominantly black men and women. Um, and to secure a kind of enclosure um, that I think is being fought against right now, and that's to say the turn of the century enclosures of industrial capitalism. So after the Civil War, across most of the South, as most people know, they established convict leasing as the primary form of punishment. Again, not exclusively, but mostly imposed upon Black people. Um, for the crimes of being unemployed or leaving employment, resisting the terms of their work, to public disorder, to murder and assault. And for all of these crimes, people were imprisoned in convict lease camps where they were forced to work basically for the southern industrialization project on railroads, cutting down trees, you know, a range of industries, brick making, and actually Georgia was the most diverse as the industrial capital of the South. And so people were in turpentine, iron ore mining, under, of course, as most people know, the most heinous conditions possible, kept alive only insofar as they could work for short periods. But because that labor was so cheap, imprisoned people were largely disposable and, of course, abused as such, including institutionalized rape, a condition upon which imprisoned people lived their lives in in these camps. And so convict leasing was eliminated across the south in various years in the early 20th century. In Georgia it was 1908 and replaced with the chain gang, in which the same conditions persisted except that imprisoned people worked for the state Um, rather than for private companies, which is who they worked for under convict leasing. And so as part of this system of convict labor and immiseration and anti-black violence and class violence for the securing of the kind of industries and social control that industrial capitalism required, there were a series of camps across the South in which people did infrastructural work, imprisoned people did infrastructural work. And this land was, you know, a stockade. So the land that stopped, stopped, that Cop City is going to be built upon or that is slated to be built upon, hopefully not built upon, um, was a stockade in 1908. Prison farm in which imprisoned people were forced to work under horribly brutal conditions, including whipping, and work the land in agriculture. And so, what is interesting as part of the report, which I've had the displeasure of reading by the Atlanta Police Foundation describing their plans. You know, they acknowledge this history and they say, the city of Atlanta purchased the property in DeKalb County in 1918 for the purpose of constructing a prison farm that would house people convicted of nonviolent crimes. At the time, the concept was regarded as progressive, enabling those convicted of nonviolent crimes to work their land, produce their own vegetables, and help provide for their own subsistence recasting the basically the social reproduction of captivity, the forced labor of people under extreme violence to um, secure the means of their own captivity as progressive. So there's a disavowal of this history of violence even as it's acknowledged. So I think that's the most direct historical precedent. Um, Convict leasing continues into the 1930s in some municipalities in Georgia, it continues and continues and never really stops inform um, informally, even though it's outlawed. But there are other histories that I just want to touch on really briefly. Um, And I want to shout out my colleague, um, Carl Jacoby's work on the criminalization of forest usage as part of the kind of expansion of policing and build um, building up policing. And so his book crimes against nature, For anyone interested details the history of the kind of forest police and the enclosure of the forest and making usage of the forest a crime in the late 19th century um in early 20th centuries so it's this contest right over ecological use um that that is historically specific it emerges actually out of the conservation movement which at the time was an elite movement for the creation of conservation and forest park areas. So it's important that we kind of think about this history as a history of struggle, too, over land and enclosure. Um, A couple of other points, I want to note that if you look at the plans for Cop City, um, they are particularly gruesome in their euphemistic you know, language, as Kwame mentioned. But what they do, you know, among other sites is they have a mock city, which includes a convenience store, um, homes, single family homes and apartments. And it's another historical reference, you know, pointing, we need to be thinking about what this is going to mean for the streets, and for the patrol of the streets and the militarization of the streets, which is You know just another form of policing um every day kind of terror of policing but the city really signals to me the kind of longer history in georgia and beyond of police intrusions into black homes and so it's important to connect kind of spaces of ostensible privacy or residences or interiors to that of the streets in the city and the forest like these are intertwined spaces in which you know carceral violence is extreme and so if we think about the history of Georgia in particular there's Tanisha Dukes in 2010 who um, whose home was invaded by SWAT police outside of Atlanta in the suburbs where they use regularly used flashbang grenades most usage of flashbang grenades across um, of any police system across the country, I believe, and her body was burned. Three quarters of her body was burned as flashbang grenades were thrown into her window. In 1972, Hester Houston was murdered in her home in Atlanta. She was 72 at the time. Her story was in the Black Panther newsletter. Katherine Johnston, in I believe 2001, also upwards of 70 years old, killed by the police in her home in Georgia. Right. And that is to say nothing of the other forms of injury that policing does. Um, I hate to exceptionalize murder, police um, commission of murder. But, you know, to think about these cases alongside the everyday humiliation and violence that exists in all of these spaces, to think about their connected histories, I think is important. And then the last thing I'll say really quickly is the history of discourse and the kind of soft carceral language that, as Kwame said, um, is so crucial to the ways in which these are rationalized and legitimated, these sites. And so, um, you know, looking again at the police report and seeing that they have um, the Center for Civil and Human Rights as a partner and using the language of civil rights as Georgia is like you know, particularly adept at from Jimmy Carter, who did it as he was expanding the carceral state in the 1970s, like use the language of civil rights. We know that there's a language of diversification, right? Um, To legitimize policing in general, specific forms of policing. And this is um, part of a broader form of neoliberal incorporation of radical movements and social movements that folks like Grace Hong and Rod Ferguson talk about and Sean Reddy talk about, but I, I think we need to think about this as blackwashing and a particular form of carceral renovation that we have to understand as violence um, and really focus a lot of abolitionist attention to that because I, it stabilizes these plans. Um, as does the kind of language of the law. So this language around terrorism, as I, under, as they, as they stated, right, was developed. This law around um, the te- terrorism law under which people are persecuted was developed um, after Charleston and the murder of Black people in Charleston, and so rationalizing it based upon its origins in a kind of anti-hate crimes esque history, which Christina Hanhart talks about in safe space. And then to think about you know people being prosecuted as they are in California, black women prosecuted under lynching law for attempting to rescue black people from the violence of policing, which happened in Pasadena during the earlier Black Lives Matter protests. So just thinking about the language of terrorism, but also the use of things like lynching and civil rights and social justice that we know are being appropriated, but I think it's particularly critical to keep our eye on that history too.
0: We'll be airing more of this panel next week. In the meantime, you can follow Defend the Atlanta Forest on Instagram and Twitter, as well as check them out at defendtheatlantaforest.org. This has been KiteLine, Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at KiteLine at or send us a letter at KiteLine, Care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.